Today's sermon text comes from the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But before I read it, I'd like to give a little bit of a background uh, to it, because there are some pieces in it that might sound unfamiliar, some people and place names that we don't think about all the time. Um, This passage ends with some words that might be more familiar to you. Um, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's a saying that you might have heard from time to time and from place to place. And it's a, a, a saying that's really meaningful, but it's not the only part of that passage. There's more to it than that. That's just at the end of the passage. And so we're going to set it in its context, and, and I'll set it in its historical context right now. Micah was a prophet that uh, examined the covenant between God and the Israelites when things were going pretty well. Uh, there had not been any conquest happening. Uh, the, the Israelites had not been conquered by Assyria or by Babylon. This is before all of that took place. Things were looking pretty good. Um, the, uh, the, the time was marked by great prosperity and maybe a little materialism, um, perhaps some economic inequality and maybe some religious uh, complacency that might sound maybe a little familiar to times today, maybe, in some, some ways. But it, this was the 8th century BC, 2,800 years ago. And Micah is portraying uh, the covenant between God and Israel as being a little bit strained because of these uh, religious and economic issues that are going on. Micah sees something coming that has not yet happened. And he's warning the Israelites that their covenant, their promise with God is uh, on, on, the, on the ropes, so to speak. Now, the covenant is a two-way relationship between God and the Israelites, where they each promise something to each other, and uh, that the, the relationship depends on each party fulfilling their end of deal. This, uh, th- this passage is intended to defend God, to say that God has not let down his end of the bargain. Uh, human uh, human uh, efforts may, may fade, human efforts may fail, but God's faithfulness has not wavered. And so to present this, Micah sets the whole scene as if it were taking place in a courtroom where God is sort of giving his defense of himself against the charge of God being unfaithful to this covenant. No, God is very much faithful to it. But there's no judge in this scene. Instead, the the witnesses, so to speak, are the mountains, the hills. And this is a pretty common thing to happen in ancient uh, Middle Eastern literature, um, to to refer to the witnesses as being these these, uh, geological things that have been around forever, because they are solid. And they have been there for a long time. And they have seen generations of people come and go. And they know what has happened, sort of. We're uh, reading into what mountains really know, I guess. But it's a way of saying, no, this is a real serious testimony that God is giving and is, uh, is setting it out in front of everyone who will be able to tell that this is true testimony. 
Okay, so God makes a few references here, or Micah does on God's behalf, uh, to explain these here briefly. Um, He references Moses and Aaron and Miriam, um, brothers and a sister, who saw the people of Israel out of slavery when they were in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. Moses and Aaron and Miriam were three leaders that helped the Israelites uh, on their way out of slavery in Egypt. Now, they wandered through the wilderness for a period of time, and they went through a couple of different lands. One of them was Moab, and you'll hear referenced Balak, the king of Moab. Balak was a character who um, was kind of afraid of the Israelites because there's this huge group of people just tromping all through the place, and he thought that they were going to take over the Moabites' land. Um, So Balak called on a prophet named Balaam, no relation, just an incidental name coincidence there. And Balaam, what the prophet, was supposed to curse the Israelites, but he didn't. He blessed the Israelites instead. Four times this happens, that Balak tries to get Balaam to curse his enemies, the Israelites, but Balaam can't help himself, but he blesses the Israelites four times. Okay, And then the Israelites get to the place where they're going to enter the promised land, finally, after their 40-some-odd years of of wandering through the wilderness. And they get to the Jordan River, and in a miraculous fashion, God parts the waters or makes the waters dry up so the Israelites can cross the Jordan River on dry land. That's all well and good. To summarize that story, the Israelites sometimes referred to the two places on opposite sides of the Jordan River, going from one to the other as a shorthand way of remembering that God had brought them across the Jordan River. And those places are Shittim and Gilgal. So when it references the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, we're talking about this miraculous way that God brought the Israelites into their homeland where they're now living. Whew. All right, that's a lot of background. Let's get to, let's get to scripture here. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn 
for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is absurd for God to have to defend himself. It is ridiculous for God to have to explain his actions to remind people of his faithfulness. But Micah speaks this craziness on God's behalf because the covenant between God and Israel is in jeopardy. That covenant began way back many generations earlier when God established it with Abraham and then renewed it with Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel and then Moses and Joshua and many, many times through the years, this covenant has been affirmed over and over again. But it is at a crisis point now in Micah's time in the Israelites' history. God's purpose in defending himself is to convince the people that he has not given up on his end of the covenant with them. And so God points back in time, many generations in the past, to Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Balak and Balaam and the journey from Shittim and Gilgal, all of these things that would be part of the Israelites' collective history. We tend not to have that long of a memory when it comes to God's faithfulness, when it comes to our history with God. A lot of the time when I hear people, Christians especially, talk about God's faithfulness, whether folks in this church or folks outside in other churches, when we talk about God's faithfulness, usually what I hear people say is uh, that they point to specific moments in their own lives. We point to moments in our personal history or maybe our parents' history or grandparents' history, and, and we remember that God has proved to be faithful, and that is absolutely wonderful. We need those stories, and we need to tell those stories Please don't hear me say anything negative about recounting the stories of God's faithfulness in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that God has been faithful a lot longer than we have been alive. A lot longer than our memory tends to, tends to last. God has moved throughout human history in many ways. And I could recount dozens of ways. Here are just a few. There was... Uh, a, a council called the Second Vatican Council about 60 years ago, uh, back in the 1960s, where the Roman Catholic Church went through a massive reformation. And I think that was a sign of God moving in that particular body. Going back further, there was a movement called the Azusa Street Revival over on the west coast of the United States. And that was sort of the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in, in American Christianity, anyhow. That was just over a hundred years ago now. And I think God was moving in that too. God was inspiring people in many ways. Throughout American history, there have been a number of great awakenings. If you remember your high school U.S. history course, you might remember something along that, those lines. Uh, the great awakenings or something, a, a period of things that took place uh, in the 1700s and the 1800s and even into the 1900s, 
The first, the second, maybe a third, maybe a fourth, who knows. But a great awakening where God brings about a new awareness of God's reality among the people. And our particular group, the Church of God movement, began as a pretty direct result of the second of those great awakenings. We kind of fall into that, into that category. God has been faithful to his people throughout those times. But we can go back further. Um, we can go back even to how God sustained uh, people who were enslaved in this country for many the, the Christian faith in particular was very, very meaningful for those who were slaves and sustained them through difficult times, through periods of, of uh, generations of hardship. Uh, and that has marked uh, the, the African-American community in particular, God's faithfulness to, uh, to the, the, that group of people through that period of time uh, is, is just tremendous to observe. We can go back even further to the Protestant Reformation uh, in the 1500s when Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and Charles Wesley and all of those other guys, they were mostly guys, sorry, that's just how it worked, but not all of them were, many of them were guys, but uh, God inspired them and was faithful to his covenant to his people by helping them to see the light and to, to see him clearly and to move closer to him. And that's just the past 500 years. We could go further back in time. But I won't belabor the point. The the point is that we should have a long memory of how God has been faithful to his covenant with his people. Otherwise, our vision becomes very narrow. And we put ourselves at the peak of salvation history as if we were the most important people in God's eyes. But God's vision is much bigger than that. God's covenant is much bigger than that. God's covenant is ultimately a covenant of life. From the very beginning, we have had the choice between life and prosperity and death and destruction. Uh, God set that out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's the choice. And God's desire has always been to bless his people with life and well-being And in response, we are to love God and to walk in God's ways, to keep God's commands. Not just at the level of our actions, but at the level of our hearts. We can look back through history to point out how God has been faithful to this covenant and called us always back to himself at that heart level. Just as Micah did by looking back at Micah's history. But if we were to identify the greatest way that God has been faithful to his covenant with us, it is in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the pinnacle of salvation history, really. And that is where God's faithfulness is most clearly identified for us. We sometimes tend to focus just on that death and resurrection piece of Jesus where he died for our sins and we have forgiveness and he rose in victory over the grave to give us new life. And that is wonderful too. Please don't hear me say anything minimizing that. That's why we're here. But this, the life and ministry of Jesus is also significant to the fulfillment of this covenant that, that God has established from the very beginning. Think of it this way. God is so committed to this covenant of life with us that God entered this world. 
We just celebrated Christmas a month or so ago. The incarnation of Jesus is the main point of that, where God enters the world. That's how committed God is to this covenant of life with us. He walks with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the word of God, the the fullness of God in bodily form. God put on human flesh in a weird sort of theological way. God embodied human experience and lived it perfectly and served others selflessly through Jesus. Jesus, while he walked this earth, turned disease into wholeness. He changed death into life. He transformed lack into abundance. Jesus came, he said, so that we might have life and have it more abundantly or to the full. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in many ways, there is a physical and social and relational restoration that Jesus was all about, in addition to this very important spiritual restoration, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus went about healing people as well. So while Micah reminds the Israelites that God redeemed them from Egypt, from the land of physical slavery, Jesus fulfills that writing by being the one who redeems us from the the spiritual land of slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to the brokenness of this world. While Micah urges people to remember the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, crossing that Jordan River, Jesus fulfills that prophecy by taking us on a journey from spiritual death to spiritual life, from being separated from God to crossing the river so that we might live with God. Jesus fulfills the themes of exodus and redemption that are in this passage from Micah. But that's not the only way that Jesus fulfills this passage from Micah. The second half of Micah's prophecy that we read today addresses the question of how we should respond to God's faithfulness. With what shall I come before the Lord in light of God's immense faithfulness to us? What is my responsibility? Well, Micah writes that uh, pleasing God does not depend on ritual sacrifices. Burnt offerings, uh, uh, sacrificial lambs, making all of these offerings of thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. He's using hyperbole to get this point across the tangible acts of sacrifice that we do are not what make us right in God's eyes. So hear this, friends. Coming to church and worshiping God here does not make you a Christian. That's not what it's about. All the religious things that we do are great, but that's not what's required of us in this covenant relationship with God. What is required of us, Micah asks, well, he writes... God has showed us what is good to act justly, or literally to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. But hang on just a minute. He said, God has showed us what is good. This is what Jesus fulfills perfectly. 
God has showed us what is good because Jesus has showed us what is good. He does justice. Jesus loves mercy and Jesus walks humbly with God in his teachings and in how he lived. So let's trace this out a little bit. Jesus does justice. Well, in the, in the way that he lifts up the lowly, in the way that he restores the oppressed, the way that he makes things right for those who have been wronged, this is, this is how he does justice. Uh, Maggie read for us the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And in the Beatitudes, uh, he, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, where there is injustice in this world, there will be justice. Jesus does justice. Well, he tells stories about this. Jesus tells lots of parables, and one of them is uh, the parable of a bunch of workers who go out, go out to work in a field one day, right? And they all work, they start working at different times during the day. And the landowner promises to pay them what is right at the end of the day. So one of them starts at 8 in the morning, the other one comes at 10, one comes at noon, 3 o'clock. One of them just comes for the last little bit, clean up work, whatever. And when it comes time to be paid at the end of the day, because that's how it worked in that time, they all get paid a full day's wage. And the people start complaining about this. This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't just. But it is just because the landowner says it is. It's my right, the landowner says, to give to whom I choose. And who are you to say that it's not just? Jesus brings justice. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. He says it not just in his teachings, but in his actions. Jesus heals the sick heals the blind, the mute, the deaf. Uh, At one point, there was a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him of that blindness, and then that man was kicked out of church. He was kicked out of the synagogue because he wouldn't rebuke Jesus for something. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was not from God, and they wanted this man who had been healed to discredit Jesus, to say that something else had happened other than Jesus healing him. But the man just told the truth. I was blind, but now I see. And this is the guy who did it. So he was kicked out of fellowship, the religious fellowship of the synagogue. But Jesus went and found him. You see, he was wronged. He was was harmed by others. But Jesus went and found him and restored him to the real relationship that mattered. I want to see who the the guy is who healed me. And Jesus says, "He's, he's the one talking to you. This is it. This is what it's all about. Jesus restored the man to a healthy, loving relationship with God, despite the wrong that he experienced at the hands of the Pharisees. So Jesus does justice. Jesus also loves mercy. Oh, the Beatitudes put it so well. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Jesus loves mercy. He tells the story of an an unforgiving servant, another one of his parables a man who owed so much money to the king that he could never even hope to begin to repay the money to the king. And rather than throw the man in jail, the king just forgave the entire debt, wiped it all away. And you would think that would change the, the, the person who no longer owed so much. But he went out and found a fellow who owed him a couple of hundred dollars or something, something that could be repaid relatively easily. And he really stuck it to him and said, you've got to pay this back I won't, let, I won't let you go until you pay me back this little amount. 
It just didn't connect with him what had happened. Jesus loves mercy. This one had experienced so much mercy, so he should show mercy to his neighbor as well. Jesus did this in his actions, not just in his words. There's a story of Jesus who, uh, when, when a woman who was caught in adultery was brought before him. You always wonder where the man was, but uh, that didn't make the story. Anyway, the woman was brought to Jesus by the Pharisees who wanted him to um, call for the death penalty. But Jesus refused that. He would not allow them to stone her to death. He said, those of you who are without stone, you can throw the first, the first uh, without sin, you can throw the first stone. And they all realized, well, that means I can't throw a stone. So they all walked away. And Jesus said to the woman, he showed her mercy, really tangible mercy, life-giving mercy. Where are those who accuse you? Well, they're gone. Neither do I accuse you, said Jesus. Mercy. Now go and sin no more. So Jesus does justice. He loves mercy. And he walks humbly with God. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Walking humbly with God requires purity of heart. Jesus told a parable of Uh, He loved parables. He told a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector, both of whom went out to pray one day, and the Pharisee said, oh, I thank you, God, for my wonderful life, and that you didn't make me like these other ridiculous poor people. Um, I'm so much better than everyone else, and I thank you for all. But the tax collector beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, God, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, that one, the tax collector, was the one who went home justified that day. Because he was humble before God. He humbly pursued God. It wasn't just in his words that Jesus uh, enacted this, uh, this walking humbly with God. It was in his life too. There are several times throughout the Gospels where Jesus withdraws from the community. Goes away to the mountains or to the wilderness so that he can commune with God. He can be with his Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his own disciples and executed before the night is over, uh, Jesus prays to his Father that you would take this cup from me. Let this crucifixion not happen. Jesus did not want to go to the cross, but he walked humbly with God from that moment on, saying, not my will, but yours be done. That's That's humility, to allow your own desires to be kind of transformed, really transformed by God's desires. Micah's three prescriptions for the holy life are revealed in Jesus' life and teachings. Jesus fulfills the hopes of the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus embodies the kind of life that the prophets urged people to live. We, too, should be careful to remember God's covenant faithfulness throughout all generations and to imitate Jesus by embodying these kingdom principles in our daily lives. So a couple of thoughts for the week. As you go about your business this week, whether you go here, there, or everywhere, remember God's faithfulness in the past 
and stretch that, stretch your imagination way back. How has God been faithful 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago? And give thanks for God's faithfulness in your life, yes, but also way before, way before that too. And then see if you can set 10 minutes aside for each of those three actions, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. See if you can find 10 minutes throughout the course of this week to do justice, whatever that looks like uh, through your lenses, whatever that looks like from your perspective, to, to right a wrong that has taken place, to, to lift someone up who has been wrongfully put down. Uh, how can you bring about justice in some small way? Just take 10 minutes to do it. See, see what you can do in 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes to, uh, to love mercy. Take a look around you and see if there is someone or a group of people or uh, uh, I don't know who, but someone who needs mercy and see if you can show love of mercy by extending mercy to that person. Maybe it's uh, a fact that you, uh, maybe it's the act of not calling in a favor or if somebody has hurt you, you don't hurt them back and you, and you show mercy to them in that way. Uh, I don't know, whatever mercy might look like through your, through your eyes. And then take 10 minutes to walk humbly with God. Again, whatever that looks like in your life. Maybe you do that on a regular basis anyway, and that's wonderful. Uh, make that part of your routine this week. But if we, can, if we can focus on imitating Jesus by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, then we will be holding up our end of the covenant bargain too. Uh, that God has established from generations gone by and made perfect, complete, in Jesus. Uh, what else is required of us? We're not saved by doing these things, just as much as we're not saved by coming to church. But it's a response to God's faithfulness. It's a response to God's mercy in our lives. And it makes the covenant relationship complete. So I give that to you as a, a, a challenge for this week. And um, if something strikes you as being really significant through those experiences, let me know how it goes for you. I'd love to hear how God moves in your life through that, through that time. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for your love for us and for your mercy to this world in sending Jesus to cleanse us of our sins, for giving us life and abundant life at that. Help us to be like you in all that we say and do this week to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. We give you thanks for the example of Jesus and for the, the way that he inspires us to live and the way that you give us life in his name. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name.